0: This is 3 and 5, an SLC management podcast. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of 3 and 5. This is Steve Peacher, president of SLC Management. And again, I'm really excited to be joined by Mark Atanasio, who's co-founder of Crescent Capital, I think, as everybody knows. And Mark, thanks for taking a couple minutes today. Last time we spoke on one of these 3 and 5s, I think we spoke a lot about baseball, but today I want to talk about the credit markets and obviously Crescent Capital was founded in 1991, so a pioneer in the credit markets. And before that, you were at Drexel, which was really the genesis of the high yield market. So, you know, I guess my starting question is, what have you seen in terms of the evolution? You know, how are things different today than they were going back to the 80s and early 90s when you started crossing
1: capital? Thanks, Steve. It's always good to be in front of everybody on a topic. And I won't say that uh, private lending is as exciting as baseball, but there are a lot of interesting developments in the market. I started Drexel in nineteen eighty-five, which really the formation of the high yield bond market. And you know, if you look at these markets today, the widely syndicated loan market, high yield bond market, and, and frankly now the, the private lending market, they're all trillion dollar markets, which was unimaginable then. You know, in nineteen eighty-eight, I believe it was, we had a, a party on the trading desk for the group for the high yield bond market hitting fifty billion in size. And so trillion-dollar type markets in, in, in sub-markets was really, you couldn't imagine. And we'll come back to this later, but I think when you see that type of asymmetric growth, you, you might continue to see it in, in private lending. But that being said, what the market was used for in the 1980s is still what it's being used for today. It was used for financing buyouts and, and acquisitions, and it was used for growth capital. And I was thinking about today's call, and this will maybe date me and date you, because I know you know one of the first transactions I worked on in the private placement desk, because in those days we called it a private placement, was the buyout of Filene's basement. (laughs) And you may have shopped there when you were younger. Oh yeah. It was a one of the biggest, most successful single site discount stores, I think the biggest in the United States. And like many other things, it expanded beyond its core group of interested people and, and ultimately changed hands and, and went bankrupt. But back in the, the mid-80s, we financed that with what would be called today private debt or direct lending debt it, with some buyout firms, I think in those days, including Greylock, it's now a big private, uh, big venture sponsor. So what what was being done then, how it was being structured, and what's being done today is, is really the same. You're making a, a loan to a company. You start. You analyze their cash flows, their pro forma prospects. You get more covenants than you get in a public loan. You get to spend more time with management and understand the business better. And you get for the liquidity premium, you get higher interest rates than you would get in the public markets. And and that is true to today.
0: But Filing's Basement, they had the famous annual wedding dress sale and people would rush to it. I now live in a high rise that sits on top of the old Filing's Basement. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I know it well. But <laughs> if you, you know, I, I started in the high yield, through the high yield team at Putnam Investments and at, right to me in 1990, Drexel was just going bankrupt. And at that time, there were a handful of insurance companies and big mutual funds. And if you were going to do a high yield deal, you had to get a few of those into your deal to get it done. Today, the landscape of investors across not just the high-yield markets, but the private credit markets has changed and expanded dramatically. So what are some of the different investors that you see that Crescent sees in the marketplace across these asset classes? You know, And what do you see from those uh, investors, from those clients?
1: That's really interesting that you're on top of you know, I, I did diligence in that store. <laughs> so, <laughs> but in any event, You know, in in the 80s and early 90s, as you say, it was populated, the private lending market, mostly by insurance companies. And they're still a big part of the market today, by the way. And I think I mentioned this at the Leadership Conference. Insurance companies are 25% of Crescent's client base. And obviously, we're we're partners with an insurance company. Uh, It makes good sense to try to get, you know, extra yield with low comparative risk. As well, in those days, you had you know firms like GE Capital, CIT. You know, GE set up a separate finance arm, uh, Heller Financial, and 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 it was a it was pretty much of a club lending group, and and that you know has morphed you know dramatically to today you know very broad participation, pension plans, defined contribution plans, sovereigns, every manner of high net worth individuals. So every Anybody who wants to try to get a high single digit yield and then some would would look at private lending because you can't get that in the public markets.
0: So if you, you know, you've commented on it, but there's been so much change since the early 80s and early 90s to today. Investor base, asset acceptance of of different flavors of these asset classes, emergence of of new areas, new structures like uh, CLOs. If you look forward, you know, you look forward three years, five years, ten years. What's what's coming down the pike in terms of the evolution of these below investment grade markets, both in the private credit side, but also maybe in the public side?
1: I'll take the public first. You know, the public again has gone way beyond our expectation of what type of companies you would finance. You know, Ford Motor was as a below investment grade rating. Uh, so did Netflix. So big names, the average EBITDA in our public portfolios, I believe, and I forget if this is average or median, is a billion dollars. So huge companies that never would have found their way to our market in in the 80s. And importantly, with that type of growth, on on the private side, you've seen the same thing. You've seen some of these direct lending syndicates now upwards of $2 billion in size. Our firm can make $500 $500 million type commitments to a single transaction. And so what what's happened is there's been a little bit, in terms of the underpinning to the market, there's been a little bit of a club atmosphere, same way there was with insurance companies with a, a handful of us who can write larger checks that will club a deal. It's now driven by the company or the private equity sponsor, all of whom have capital markets groups and, and reach out looking for a quick quick answer and structurally for something that you know the first dollar repayment goes back to you so that that's a technical evolution in the market so i expect that to continue to to grow and, and and a lot of this is just the advent of technology so in the 1980s to get this financial information it would have to get delivered to you i don't even know if we had fedex then i'm trying to remember and you know now you could put something on a portal and get into it and you know last year by way of example it, or it, the last year, the pandemic at Crescent, from our homes, we originated or participated in originations of $8.9 billion, $8.9 billion of private lending from our homes. And that's unimaginable, right? Even I'd say 10 years ago. So I'd expect that to continue. The banks, and especially as you have choppy environments, that they sort of come back into things and then they get regulated out. So- You've seen banks get back into both the taking things on their balance sheet in the widely syndicated loan market, and and in the private markets. But they've already had a few missteps, which have been reported. and And I think that you know those of us who spend all day, every day, just managing risk end up doing a, a better job of it.
0: Well, you mentioned technology. I can remember when I think it was called the Fed filings terminal, but I remember K's and Q's used to come over. You could actually get a Q, 10Q before other people got it, you know, which is unimaginable today. And I remember having a Monroe bond calculator on my desk, which most people <laughs> wouldn't even remember what it was, but, you know, and I don't think it, it couldn't either hand, it couldn't handle pick interest or something. I can't, there was a one flaw in it that of course, with the advent of Bloomberg, nobody even remembers, but so let me, uh, one final question. I like to ask a personal question. So this is a completely different direction, but you, you're very involved. You, I know, I know you've got a kind of a, a top baseball card collection. And there was a recent kind of well-reported sale of a Mickey Mantle card for over $12 million. And my question is how the collectibles market like baseball cards, which has been around for a long time, is intersecting with this emergence of NFTs or non-fungible tokens. And I think there's an example that you've told me about related to this Mickey Mantle cards. I thought people would be interested in that. So let me throw that at you.
1: So the collectibles market pretty much exploded It's much the same way these private markets were talking about in COVID because a lot of people were at home with a lot of time on their hands. And, and the prices of collectible cards, for example, pretty much tripled over an 18-month period. And now there's all kinds of collectible card funds. In fact, I'm invested in a, in a couple. And, and a lot of them started to focus on the grading of the cards much the same way, maybe coin collectors, and, and and this has been true in collectibles for a long time, but the focus has gotten extreme to where a perfect example of something gets a a premium. So to use the Mickey Mantle card as an example, the, the actual card, and there's different rating agencies, just like there are in bonds. So there's three or four of them, PSA being the most widely accepted, but three or four others that are definitely accepted. And and PSA, by the way, is the subject of a buyout, which was backed by Steve Cohn, who's now uh, and owns the Madsen as a big hedge fund manager. In any event, a Mickey Mantle 10 is, hasn't traded forever. People think it's worth tens of millions. A nine sold for five million. A, an eight sells for like 2 million. The, the nine's probably worth, you know, 5 to 10. A terrific example of a 9.5 from a, a different, I forgot who rated it, but that was in a famous collection, just auctioned at Heritage Auctions for $12.6 million. And so the, that, that set a standard. And the question would be, which happened before it, but in this mix, well, what happens when NFTs come in? Because with an NFT, you can get a perfect image of something. It's electronic. You'd have it on your, your phone, or on your computer. Fanatics... which is a big, broad, sports-themed company, everything from tops cards to gear to other things they do, they control uh, baseball's NFT rights. And they put out a Mickey Mantle NFT card. And the question is, well, what was that going to sell at? And there were a bunch of people on one side of it, so this is the new paradigm, that this isn't by definition, a perfect card or perfect representation. It came out of the TOPS database. It came, you know, perfect photographic plate re- reproduction. It's going to compare with the the hard copies or the tangible copies. Another said people are going to hold something for real, and those are the people who want out. So the, the NFT sold for about four hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Which is a lot of money to to show somebody a, a picture of a card, by the way, that you and I could pull up a Mickey Mantle card image on our iPhones and kind of indistinguishable and say you own the NFT, but but not the same as the as the hard copy. So it's it's there. A lot of NFTs have to do with experiences. The Mickey Mantle card you got to talk to his two sons for 30 minutes. Maybe if you could talk to the Mick for 30 minutes, it would have been different. And we'll we'll see how that grows up. I, I think NFTs are here to stay, but they need to, there was a lot of speculation in that market as there were in the crypto markets. And, and frankly, as there were talking about the high yield market, Steve, when you and I were managing high yield money, there was a lot of speculation, right? And now it's, there's a lot more discipline.
0: Well, it's a, it's really fascinating to me because this is a great example of the virtual world meeting the physical world. So you can compare the price of a card you can hold to a perfect image of the card that you can hold. And well, at least in this instance, you see how those are priced relatively well, listen, Mark, I appreciate it. I mean, there's, it's basically been a fascinating discussion and there are intersections and analogies between a market like Cards and the evolution of that to a market that's evolved over the last 30 plus years in private credit. So thanks everybody for listening to this episode and Mark, thank you for taking time again. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Dave. This is always fun to do.